Oh, I know there's a lot of uh, new faces, a lot of uh, seeking uh, souls that walk in this place, just wanting to know what this is. It's a worship service. So, so we're a people, a people that, are, that have glad hearts towards God, even though that we did not deserve his love, deserve his affection, deserve the work of his son for us on our behalf. We uh, get to gladly enjoy him more because Jesus Christ has reconciled us to the Father through his person and work, through his life, death, and resurrection. And so it's glorious that we get to actually know him and enjoy him and walk in ways that are satisfying to our souls. And so we worship Jesus by singing songs. That's why we just sang. Uh, we uh, pick songs for reasons because we believe they serve our hearts and serve the sermons and serve our worship uh, experience together. We also sit under the teaching of God's word. I always remind people that the, the man is fallible, the word of God is infallible. So we pray that God helps us to hold on to things that he wants us to remember and let go of things that might not be helpful. We also worship Jesus each week by observing his supper. He gave us this supper so that we could be nourished and reminded of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ. And so um, we do that post sermon, we do that by confessing examining and then gladly coming, remembering that Jesus Christ alone is the cornerstone to everything that we do as a people, and so he's who we celebrate. We also worship him by giving. We give on the silver black boxes in the back. If you're new, not a regular attender or a member, we don't need your income. We just want you to know him and enjoy him. So that's our prayer for you. Um, uh, here's what we've been doing. We've been uh, going through the next eight weeks. Now, just so you know, our, our normal diet consistently is just teaching through books of the Bible. So we took two years uh, in Luke. We just finished Ecclesiastes this summer. We're now just taking eight weeks to drill deep our well into, into places where who are we as a people, okay? I said when we did this three years ago, there were 50 of us. Now there's 350. So we have to actually try to work hard to keep everybody on the same page because these things are not just values. I said their convictions. Now here's why that's important to understand. What you're hearing, what you're learning are not just things that we share together. They're not just values that shape us, things we're committed to, they're things we'll sacrifice for. Uh, there's a big difference, right? Um, values can only take you so far. Convictions are things at the end of the day, these things form your life, form how you worship, form how you live, form how we operate as a people. And so uh, there's four of them when we gathered uh, in a little house with about 20 of us to walk through what are these identities that we would be. It's word, uh, gospel, discipleship, and mission. And we're taking eight weeks, four weeks on gospel because we said last week, Paul said this is of first importance. You can get everything else wrong. Don't get the gospel wrong. So we want to clarify it make sure we understand the weight of it, the weight of our offense, the weight of God's infinite perfections, uh, and then all that was demanded of us and what we deserved in light of his mercy. So, because if you don't get God's gospel, it doesn't matter what else we do, okay? It doesn't matter what we talk about with discipleship. It doesn't matter what we talk about with mission or word. Uh, we want to get the understanding of his gospel. So, we're, we're in the second week, and then uh, we'll do a week on what it means to be a word-driven people, the sufficiency of the scriptures, that this book pertains all we need for life and godliness. Then we get into how does that allow us to fulfill the mandate and mission of Jesus to make disciples, which ultimately brings us to two weeks on the mission that we have to not only see God use us in our evangelism, but multiplication. So uh, very looking forward, looking much forward to doing that. Uh, but this morning, um, we have a lot to cover, and a lot of it is heavy. Uh, we're going to talk about hell this morning. Now, uh, I don't know if many of you, how you came in the room or in your prayers this morning, if you're like, man, I can't wait till pastor teaches on hell. That's the subject I want to hear. Well, uh, that's what we're going to deal with, and here's why we're going to talk about it. We talked last week about this God that lives, exists, 
dwells in what's known as infinite perfections, okay? So this God is mostly concerned with his glory, his namesake, his name and renown, and us actually being most satisfied and enjoying his glory and all that he's made. So we have everything we've been given is not for ourselves, but to be rolled back up into God, into worship. So we saw the massive glory problem that we all have, right? That that's an issue that plagues and pangs each of our hearts and how God is trying to free us from are uh, basically wanting to have his glory for ourselves. We saw that in Genesis 3, walk through the whole Old Testament into the New Testament. Pattern hasn't changed. And so we left with how does God treat our sin? And I say a lot, if you want to see how serious your sin is, you got to look at the two ways God responds. He responds to eternal, eternal conscious torment in hell or the killing of his son. Uh, so we're going to do hell this week, the killing of Jesus next week, the glorious resurrection, and they get into the word. Now, um, I want you to know that the enemy does not want you to hear a sermon on hell. Um, he works aggressively to keep this out of pulpits, keep this out of churches, uh, keep the doctrine of hell away from people hearing this. Um, remember, it was made for him and all of the fallen angels that followed him and then uh, and, and followed suit, right, all of us as humanity who will choose uh, really the deception of him and the love of him over the love of Jesus. And so uh, he wants as many people possible with him. He cannot rescue people to heaven, but he can blind people, cause doubt, discouragement, and dismay to people's hearts and blind them to a certain degree under the authority of God from seeing the glory of Christ. And so um, this is massively important. Even this week, I felt the reality of this. I got to the end of the week, finished my whole sermon, and I'm kind of a little bit um, not that... uh, I play a lot of sports, but my hand-eye coordination isn't always great. Okay, so let's just say that. So I walk in my office with my water bottle, and I dump all the water on my computer, short circuits my whole computer, lose my sermon. I'm going full-fledged panic attack, right? So then I'm like, this is demonic. I mean, Satan doesn't want me doing this. So I take it to the Apple store, sit at the genius desk. I'm asking them to tell me, and they're like, yeah, it'll be 800 bucks to ship it in. I ain't paying no one $800 for water damage, right? And so I'm going, that's what I paid for the laptop. This is sin. So I, I'm not quite sure why I didn't send it in. I don't know what to do, so I text somebody, a member here, I'm going to remove his name because he's too humble to want to admit it, but this gracious, faithful church member, there's nothing better than just a faithful saint, apparently built computers, comes to my house that evening, end of the week. He's there till almost two in the morning. Undo- now, now, Mac is smart. They know the little screws on the back of your computer. You have to actually buy a specific screwdriver for that, which is why you gotta take it to the store, which is why Apple has all of us enslaved, okay? So that, that's why. They, they, are, they are very, very smart. So, so he's sitting there, and he's like, hours are going by. We can't find anything to fit it. He thought he had the screwdriver, so he writes his wife, wife, godly church member, you're not leaving until you get Pastor Mike's sermon on hell. We need to hear about hell. So, so, so he's working hard. He's sweating. Eventually, he starts lighting a fire, molding and welding my screwdrivers. My tools are melting at my dining room table. Not kidding. He eventually fits it by midnight, takes him an hour, breaks off the back, want to take out the hard drive, put in a new computer. We're blow drying the bottom, making sure everything's out. Praise God. Somehow it turns on. I'm thrilled, right? So now we have a sermon. So... I say all that, one, because just to encourage you at, at, at faithfulness of you, uh, and, and uh, the whole night I'm going, I'm going, dude, you got to tell me if this ain't going to work, because I have to start rewriting like now, right, because this is necessary. But I also say that to just honestly just share with us that, that it is not always happenstance. It is not always just random, that the enemy is aggressive and using the 
silliest of ways and things uh, in trying to keep this from us. And so I honestly was very aware that, hey, I do not find it ironic that on the week of this, at the end of the week, a day before that that would happen. And so uh, praise God that that's what we're going to hear today. We pray it would help us to worship. So let's ask him for that help. Why don't you appeal to the Holy Spirit now in your seat and ask him to give you hearing, ask him to give you concern, ask him to help you understand the weight of your offense, the weight of my offense. Because I think for most of us, if we're honest, it's escaped us. For we must understand the weight of glory to understand the weight of sin. And the consequence due us for belittling his name. Father, would you help us to hear truths, doctrines in this place, Lord, that matter, that are of eternal weight and significance? Would you help us not to ignore realities that are hard to hear and difficult to even comprehend? Father, would you move us to a place where we take sin seriously, we take you seriously, where we can enjoy you even more fully because now behind the backdrop of all of this we see the massive ways that Christ has rescued us. Help us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Hey man, well, I want to uh, remind us, you know, as, as every Sunday is, it's my job to tell you the truth, right? It's not my job to make you happy. It's not my job to make you comfortable. It's not my job to just uh, create an environment where everything's good. I think it's beautiful when we say all the time that we want to provide a place where you can hear the truth and deal with it. So we realize that there's decisions that you have to make, but from the elders, pastors, teachers, it's our job to teach the truth. You'll see Jesus, the most truth-telling man who ever lives, say, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. And then it's our job to say, do we believe that or not? Right? Are we going to disagree with Jesus? Are we going to fight with Jesus? Are we going to fight with God and his inerrant word? Are we going to just say, hey, this is what it says and this is what uh, it will be for us? Now, listen, I'll remind you, you can find many people that will disagree with me. Uh, you can find best-selling authors. You can find people that are profitable and healthy and wealthy and uh, make a living off of what I believe are lies and not the truth. So um, because I love you, we say we want to teach the full counsel of God. We want to teach all that the scriptures have to say because ultimately we feel as elders and pastors the blood is on our hands. And that's a really weighty thing to consider, a weighty thing to think about. So if we skip topics, skip texts, and don't talk about issues as central to our belief in this gospel, then we're doing a great disservice to our hearts and us as a family. And so, um, listen, we will uh, look at this and we will see what Jesus has to say, what God has to say. Now, um, why talk about hell? Why talk about eternal suffering? Why talk about the end for those who do not have a saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus Christ? Um, and I said this in my prayer, because you cannot understand the weight of glory and without understanding the weight of your sin. You cannot understand what is due you if you don't understand the nature of the offense. And what I mean is if last week, you, you, and you have to listen to these in, in order. If you missed last week, you have to listen because a lot of this will not be as helpful as it could be. When you, when you read and see the nature of God and how he exists, if you, if you look at the way scripture talks about him and how God reveals himself and what he says about himself, the holiness, the justice, the majesty, the superiority, the, the immensity, the, the everything about him that makes him glorious and perfect in all that he is and does, it then helps us understand the weight of when we try to steal that glory. So I always say, um, you have to preach the bad news to preach the good news, right? The good news is not the bad news 
news is just news. Like, it, it doesn't even make sense to me. Like, like, it's just, it's not even happy news, right? It's just news you're given to what? Improve your life, to fix some things, to change habits. Whereas there's got to be really, really bad news to make good news really, really, really good. And so that's what we believe as Christians is that we've got really, 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 really good news. Why? Because the bad news is terrible. Because the bad news is awful. Because what's at stake is serious. So um, let's all remind ourselves the modern mind as a whole rejects the idea of final judgment and hell, right? You can uh, read lots about this. You can listen to people try to discuss it. Even people who maybe once named themselves as Christians who have believed now that this is not a doctrine to be held to. Um, You got a number of these beliefs. You have the naturalist, right? Um, This person believes that we basically have a physical body, no soul. And so eventually when you die, you just cease to exist and go into nothingness. Um, That's not true, right? I mean, Paul, Jesus, and others say there is soul and spirit, that there is eternal places that we go after this life. You have the universalist, right? This person says that in the end, all religions, all beliefs, all practices ultimately somehow lead their way to God, right? So, So God in the end will find himself happy with all of us regardless of our belief and practice. He will accept everyone regardless of really what they thought about him. Uh, Whatever your mind is of God, that is what uh, that will be. Understand there's a very deceptive kind of undercurrent uh, that makes its way into Christianity with this kind of at its helm, a version of this that says there's opportunity for post-mortem salvation that in the end will ultimately all see Jesus, be happy with him, enjoy him, and be grafted into heaven. Hebrews is going to be really clear that it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. Um, we don't believe that. This is not true. You have reincarnation, right? I mean, we've even discussed that with some of you guys. There's multiple successive lives that we have. We're trying to pay off karmic debt, right, to somehow uh, make a way for this eternal bliss we want to be a part of, yet uh, Jesus is clear about that, that there is nothing true in that regard, that we have one life, Paul will say you die, and then immediately you're with Christ or you're not with Christ. Um, you have annihilationism, right? People who die uh, apart from knowing Jesus, they might, there are some branches that say, hey, you suffer in hell for a little while, but ultimately you make it to paradise with Jesus. There's some say that uh, no one ends up in uh, hell and that ultimately you just cease to exist if you did not know Jesus. That is not true either. Listen, Jesus did not die. He did not take God's wrath. He was not scourged and scorned for nothing. If those views are true, it makes no logical sense that Jesus would have died. Why go to the cross? Why take God's wrath if in the end God is going to win in such a way where it does not really matter? And so what does Jesus say? What does God say? Because the debate on this rages within Christianity. Um, I think if, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you, you see this across the landscape. Um, but whereas if you read your scriptures, if you read your Bible, Jesus talks about hell 50% of the time. Um, most of his parables were actually all in relation to judgment and hell. Almost every single one that he gives. Most will say Jesus, you hear this a lot, he's the most humble, loving, gracious person who ever lived. So how in the world could a man like Jesus believe in a place like hell? Whereas we see, well, Jesus was the most humble, loving, truth-telling man who ever lived. So shouldn't we listen to that and see how serious our sin must be if the most loving man to exist would speak in such stark of terms? So let's, let's see what he has to say. Look at Luke chapter 12. We're going to look at a few texts. We studied this in Luke. When we went through the Luke. Look at what Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 4. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that of nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
Um, Jesus actually, when he says hell here, uses this word about 12 other times in his gospels. It refers to this word Gehenna. It's where uh, there's this valley of Hinnon south of Jerusalem. It was this place that uh, these people really knew about. So Jesus is trying to get a, a depiction in their head. I'm trying to give you guys a visual of what you've seen to understand what it might look like, what this might be like, right? He's trying to help us understand the picture of this, the weight of this, the, the urgency of this. And what would happen is it's this place where basically children were sacrificed to demon gods. It was a wicked, horrible place. And so um, these people understood this. Um, and not only was that, later they made it kind of this place where they would just throw their garbage, they would throw dead bodies, they would throw feces, they would put stuff in this ravine, and then they would light it on fire. And because the stench was so bad, worms and maggots and things would crawl all over the, the, the stuff that existed where it was so repulsive, you would want nothing to be near it, your eyes, your nose, nothing. So he's going, when I speak of hell, this is what I'm talking about. This is how horrible it is. This is how weighty it is. This is how, I'm, 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 and, and understand what he can even depict on earthly terms cannot compare to the infinite terms. So he's, he's showing us, man, and he's really given this plea to, to fearing man, but he uses hell as this reality of, man, God has authority over this. Jesus has authority over this. Why are you fearing people when you should be fearing the one who can cast you in a place like the Valley of Hinnon, a place where the worm does not die, a place where the smoke rises forever, eternal, conscious. Uh, now, some will tell you the Bible doesn't talk about hell in the Old Testament, right? Okay, so we'll, we're going to look at Jesus, but understand, Jesus, because he's a good Bible teacher is just ripping off the end of Isaiah 66 and teaching you here and taking from those words. A lot of the Old Testament will tell you the many different places that hell is. Daniel 12.2 you can read, the end of Isaiah 66. Here's what uh, Jesus picks up and he's repeated. Um, look at Isaiah 30 verse 33. He says, for a burning place, this is the Old Testament, warning us of judgment, warning us of eternity. Um, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made it ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord like a stream of sulfur kindles it. Um, you can read many other texts in the Old Testament that talk about this future judgment, this future hell, this future suffering. This is why Jesus says in Mark 9, he, he gives this analogy and reminds us of what he just said in Luke 12. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Um, he's using this imagery, this, this illustrative work of Jesus where they could understand, yeah, I've, I've seen that place. I've, I've, I don't even go near it because I've heard people walk by it and what they've smelled and what they've seen with their eyes, how horrible it is. Jesus is saying hell is like that ravine. Hell is like that place. It's the best depiction I can use that you've seen with your own eyes, a place of neglect, a place of destruction, a place of eternal torment where the fire never stops burning and the worms never stop crawling and the flame burns forever. Look at Matthew 18, Jesus again, 18 verse 8, and he, he explains this in a little bit more detail. And he uses the things that we know, right, the good things we love, what we can see with our eyes, what we can do with our hands. He says, if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
Jesus does this a lot in his teachings. It's progression of greatest to worst. And he gives these illustrations. And you can kind of think through this in your own head. Like, what are the things that are absolute euphoria to you, absolute beauty to you, absolute goodness to you that you can see with your eyes and do with your hands? And he says, it is actually better that you don't do any of those things than to do all of those things and find yourself perishing apart from Christ forever. I mean, when I started thinking about this, that that it's better that I never hold my son Jackson ever and feel him and hug him and hold him, that that, it would be better that I never play the sports that I love, that it would be better that I never go and see natural wonders and galaxies and stars and beauty. It would be better that I don't do any of those things than do all of them and still perish. How horrible hell has to be. That even the best thing you can do or enjoy that God has given you as a grace in this life, it'd be better to have none of that. And Jesus is trying to lay before us the realness of this. He would not say these things if it were not real. He would not lay before us this urgency if there wasn't something to be urgent about. He spoke about hell in his parables, Luke 16. We read this text. We read about this parable when we walked through the book of Luke. He talks about this rich man clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And his gate was a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades was in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water just to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received very good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish, and besides all this there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you will not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Jesus gives this parable. A a parable is a theological uh, story or truth to help a theological point, helps illustrate something, and there are many things that we discussed in here, but what I want you to see here is Jesus shares in this parable and depicts hell as a chasm that excludes you from the presence of God, right? The reality of hell and the presence of God, that, that you cannot cross over those things, that all that God is, that all that God has, that all that God is in his immensity and his majesty and his glory and his infinite perfections and all the ways that he is, that you cannot have access to that goodness of God at all post-mortem apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. So this has been fixed, and you could spend time even considering what that even looks like or imagine what that feels like, but here he's laying before us, right, this, this frightening reality that it's a terrifying place because God himself is not there. I mean, everything that's good, everything that you have, that you even label as good if it comes from God's hand is the essence of all that is pure, holy, and good and satisfying. So it's removed from you and you have anguish and torment. And and further, what's terrifying about this text in particular, as you read these, is what's terrifying about the Gospels is most people, when we think of hell, we think because we've read Far Side magazines or looked at the calendar, which mocks, it makes it silly, we laugh about it, we we think it's comical because we can't handle the reality of it. And so uh, we believe that that in the end, as we see these things, it's really for the outright wicked, you know, wearing demon t-shirts, foaming at the mouth, those people doing, you know, all that different wicked stuff, really vile terrorists, man, they're, they're suffering in hell when Jesus 
is saying this to a bunch of religious people who outwardly loved the show and had no internal change. It's terrifying. That, 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 that that's who Jesus talks about the reality of hell too. It's not just these outright wicked, vile, horrible, external-looking, morally bad people, but he actually tells it to the very religious people who actually attend church every Sunday, who actually love boasting about their knowledge of the Bible. That's who he tells us to. How terrifying. How serious must we take this? How much should we examine our hearts to see what we believe about God, believe about his work of his son? And notice he says, hell is conscious. The man's aware of it. It's awful. It's agonizing. There's no ending. Final text, um, Revelation 14. This is what John says in the end of, end of it all. And there's many more you could see and read. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of his holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Again, you're gonna see in Revelation 19 and even 20 later this reality of eternal conscious nature of hell. Not theory, um, not ideological, uh, not mystical, um, not something that is um, metaphorical, but real, literal, anguish, conscious, eternal torment. And according to this text, hell very simply is the wrath of God in effect. Now, we talked about this weeks ago, months ago maybe, how the wrath of God, I don't know, I don't know a subject more avoided in church. Right? I mean, we just, they want to manipulate it, avoid it, divert it. No one wants to talk about the, the great, just, good wrath of God towards us in our sin. Um, we just want to think that Jesus saves us from having, like, lukewarm lives to better lives. And that, that's awful news. Have you ever thought about that? If, if Jesus died and was buried and rose again just for you to be a better version of yourself or just so that you could feel better about habits or just so you could be freed of some addictions and not just make your dead soul be brought to life, not make one who is in opposition and an enemy of God one of his kids, if that's not what God is doing, then forget the gospel. Why chase that? Chase everything else. Find your life in every bit of everything else. And here we see that the wrath of God in effect is really very simply what hell is. Now, here's the problem. So many of us take God's attributes, right, and we make it the attribute of God and not an attribute of God. Right? So we take and we talk about hell, we talk about wrath, talk about these things. We talk about God's love. And listen, if you've been coming for any length of time, we elevate his love. We cherish the love of God. We celebrate the love of God. It is even discussed deeply and richly in the scriptures, but it is not the attribute of God. It is an attribute of God. And if you read the scriptures, the scriptures say that God holds all of his attributes simultaneously and consistently together perfectly. So the problem is we actually can commit idolatry even with God's attributes. And we'll take an attribute of God and say, well, this is elevated above every other one so he can't possibly be just, possibly be this holy, possibly be this wrath-filled if he's really loving. 
And yet the scriptures say he is ferociously loving and he is also ferociously wrath-filled and just and holy and good. That is why I say a lot, God is love, but love is not God. Love is not what we worship. We worship God who demonstrates love profoundly in the work of his son when we deserve wrath and judgment. Amazing to see this. And so understand, you can even read the scriptures, but if you want to understand the love of God, you have to understand the holiness of God. And actually, if you read your Bible, you see the attribute mentioned more than the love of God is the holiness of God. There's something God's trying to get across to us. So usually when we discuss this, there's two common things people will say, and I understand them. I, I, I get this. I mean, I'm, I'm in this camp where, like, I, it's something that I, especially through college and, and right out of school, just wrestling through the realities of the Scriptures. And when I had told you about my crisis of faith and going, man, I, I have to decide what I believe about these things. This is going to shape everything. I can't just leave certain parts out. I mean, i got to get the, the whole book bound up, and i got to say, God, reveal to me this stuff. Help me to understand what's true. And the first one is usually this idea, and you've probably heard it phrased a number of different ways, but it's that basically it doesn't make sense to me that, that somebody who commits horrific crimes and me who steals Skittles get the same punishment. Right? That, 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 that this, this whole equality on punishment and crime, it doesn't fit, it doesn't equal each other. And here's what most of us do, though, and it really doesn't make any sense. It actually increases and shows the reason that God actually holds our offense in such high regard. Um, if hell exists, if the reason that it exists is because there is a belittling of the name and renown of Jesus Christ and God himself and all his character, that we, we don't understand the, the massive weight and glory and beauty of God, that he is so awesome and so holy and so good that, that even our finite minds need the illumination of the Holy Spirit to even begin to unpack for us the beauty and glory that's there. And even then, right, cause our hearts to want Jesus Christ and see Christ for being glorious and see his work in the gospel, in the cross of himself. I mean, okay, so if, he, if, he's, if he's that big, listen, just open your Bible and read it. The immensity cannot be undertoned. We saw Ezekiel and Isaiah, just two prophets, right, fall on their face and lose their, their breath at just the sight of a morsel of his glory. We looked at Moses and the ways that he did that. So we've already covered a little bit of that. So you can see that in the text in Scripture. So, so here, as you're thinking through this, your answer to this idea of punishment doesn't equal the crime that I've committed, you can't for your own safety, you can't for your own further sin, further belittle his name by saying, well, that doesn't fit the crime because here's what you're doing. You're saying that the name, renowned, glory, illuminescence, majesty, weightiness, beauty, infinite perfections of God really aren't that big of a deal. You just start running full circle. You get in your cul-de-sac and you continue to do it. Because what you're saying is, his glory's not that big of a deal because my offense is not that big of a deal. When really you don't realize his glory and you don't realize your offense then. You don't realize how weighty it is to try to steal glory from the only one who has it and keeps it. And that's why I said for many of us, the weight of our sin has escaped us. And so what we do in irony, in great irony, is for our own protection, continue to commit the very sin that further damns us by going, well, it's not that big of a deal. So it doesn't matter that I do this. And it doesn't matter that I do this. 
And God's going, hold on a second. Have you not seen me? Because the right response is how holy, how good, how big must God be if this is the response, if this is the right response to not wanting to give this God glory, man, how glorious must he be, right? I mean, if you go up and you slap me, like, I'm not going to really do anything. Watch yourself, right? Like, I'm not going to do anything. You go up and slap the president, something might happen to you. You slap the God of the universe, things are going to happen. The weight of the offense. I mean, who are we doing this to? Who are we doing this towards? The, the, the horror, the awfulness, the terribleness, the, the tragedy of hell should help us to see an echo of how infinitely perfect and worthy God is. So as you look at it, it's like a mirror, and it helps you see the weight and worth of God. Now, the other one that's uh, common that I, I hear a lot is that I'm not going to believe in the God of the Scriptures because I believe in a God of love, right? So, so um, I can't believe in a God that's loving if this God actually creates and fills a place like hell. Um, because the God I believe is a God of love. Again, I, I understand that thought process, the desire that God would just accept people regardless of their practice and belief. But here's the problem. Um, if you start exploring every other belief system outside of the text of Christianity, you're going to find very quickly that your understanding of love, even your wanting to believe in a God of love, is not really found anywhere except the God of the Bible. Now, yes, we've got Buddhism, right? A, a, a belief system where we, we appreciate the selflessness and service that they want to give, right? That, that, that's in their heart. But they do not believe in a God where love is the action of him as a person. They do not believe in a God who made this world out of love and delight. You can talk about the Muslim God. You can read about the Muslim God, and even though they believe in love, it's more as mercy and kindness. It's not as an intimate affection that they have for human beings. So, so you keep looking, you keep searching. The question I always want to bring us back to is the, the frame of reference for you to even want to believe in a God of love. The only place you can go with historical textual support is the God of Christianity, the God of the scriptures, because he alone is a God. He's the only God, the scriptures say, that we say that actually made this world out of love and delight, that he actually longs to make us his own, his children, right? That we, we cry, Abba, Father, that there's intimacy, it's personal, it's direct, it's powerful. There is affection from the God of the Bible, the Trinitarian God that no other God exhausts or exists in or gives to his created people. So if you're going to say, I want to believe in a God of love, then you have to be intellectually honest enough to say, well, the only place I'm going to find that is the God of the scriptures. Because that's where we actually find a God who exists in the truest sense of love. A God who demonstrates it profoundly right in the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So for us to believe in a God of love who accepts everyone and judges no one is a powerful act of faith if you're outside of the Bible. It takes a powerful act of faith to make that deity up, to believe in this existence of a God who can let people do whatever they want and never judge them and yet receive them all. 
And so our God is a God that dwells in all his infinite perfections and demands and deserves a payment for us trying to steal that from him. Now, I had a student a number of years ago when I was teaching down in a uh, ministry um, in South Carolina, and I'd go down to Myrtle Beach in the summertime, and I was teaching at this uh, retreat, and the student came up to me, and he, we were going through just the aspects of the cross, the aspects of the gospel, and he basically said, um, if God is loving, um, that doesn't make sense to me that he would threaten me with hell. Right? I mean, so this is such a weird thing. It can seem like an, an oxymoron. I don't, wanna, I don't want Jesus, but I don't want hell either, so I don't know. Do I just, like, follow Jesus? Do I just pursue Jesus? Do I just try and take him? Do I? What do I do? That doesn't add up for me, that a God could be loving then threaten me with a punishment this great and this big. Well, here, here's um, the truth, because it is a good question. If, if God is truly all that he says he is, guys, I mean, if, if, if God really is the greatest treasure, if God really is the greatest thing that exists, if really your deepest joy and most profound happiness is fully bound up in him, if all of that comes back to God, then is that God really loving if he does not call you to himself and give you the work of Jesus on your behalf, if he does not prod you and push you and lure you and even put you in this place this morning to actually hear the good gospel of grace, a Jesus who does scandalous work at reconciling sinners who are destined for eternal torment and hell, that he actually shows you his love, demonstrates his love by saying, hey, this, this is my value, this is my worth, and I want to see you, show you the ways I've pursued you. Because here's what happens, guys. At the end of the day, if you reject this, ignore this, leave this place, those are all freedoms you have to choose, right? If you if you do that, you stand before the judgment whether when he returns or you pass from this life. I guarantee, right, all of us are going to question God being very loving because we see him in all his holiness and glory and go, man, if you were this awesome, if you were this holy, if you were this good, if you were this bright, if you were this majestic and, and worthy, man, why in the world did you not pursue me, call me, lure me? And he's going, man, that happened. You rejected. You rejected my call of repentance. And so it's it's on you. This is what's so amazing is you either question his love now or you will question his love later and God is letting you see that his love is demonstrated in giving him a us all a way out out of this wrath and justice that is due us in the work of his son. The work of Jesus that says I drink the cup of wrath in its fullness. I take it all on myself as your substitute in your place for all your sin. I literally become it for you and then you get the pleasures of God. In Christ, you get infinite righteousness. You get infinite wealth in my kingdom, right? Parts of it now fully to come. So you cannot escape God giving you and showing you that he loves you. That he's infinitely loving despite him being infinitely holy and just and righteous and wrathful. That our God is not a God who's one-dimensional but infinitely dimensional, who does not just see the time, stands out of time. He is in the future. He does not just know the future. Places our minds don't have the capacity to go. See, this is why, guys, salvation is not you being scared in immoral acts of goodness. This is where actually the doctrine of hell has been really misused. Um, this is why a lot of people come to me and say, hey, I don't understand why the cults are so much more committed than, than Christians. <laughs> 
They're not more committed. They, they have to do those things. If they want to get their 70 virgins, if they want to get their place in levels of heaven, if they want to appease their God in some way, they have to do these things. Yet the gospel of grace, love that is so incredible, says, no, I love you not only when you're a son who does what is right, but even when you're a son who rebels. And love is founded on faith alone in Christ alone. That it's faith that purchases us into the kingdom. That's not faith plus just trying to act good so God doesn't smite us. I mean, he says in Romans 2, I thought it was the kindness of my love that would lead you to repentance. I thought it was just how loving I am, just the, the essence of that that would actually lead you to a place where you turn from your sin and turn to me. And this is why, guys, um, I do not share this because I'm trying to scare you into heaven. I just, I'm sharing it because it's true. I'm not sharing this because I really want you to, to choose God because you're just fearful of some judgment. I want you to see himself because salvation fundamentally is you seeing and enjoying the one who's revealed himself and finding your satisfaction in him forever. And you see that and you enjoy that when you realize the weight of your offense in the reality of hell. Because listen, you can scare people to do a lot of things, right? I mean, I could terrify you every week to show up to church, give you all the reasons that you should be here, or terrify you into praying every day, or terrify you into giving everything that you own, or terrify you and scare you into living in such a way to where your whole life is done out of fear, but you cannot scare anybody into loving the God of the universe. Because heaven is not for people who just are afraid of hell and want fire insurance. Heaven is filled with people who love this God. And enjoy this God who dwells in infinite perfections. Now that's weighty. So you cannot scare people into heaven. You cannot scare people into loving him because they're afraid of something. And this is why we saw last week that all God has to do is reveal himself. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the fundamental sin of the universe is misplaced affections. We lay and throw our affections, all of our joy, all of our pursuit, we throw it on everything but him. And the scriptures will say the penalty due that fundamental sin is eternal conscious anguish separated from himself for all of eternity where the worm does not die, where smoke rises forever, where the stench and smell would cause you to want to perish. How horrible, but how glorious is our God. How holy must our God be. And so what do we do? Where do we throw our affections? Where do we throw our pursuits? It's on possessions. It's on hobbies. It's on everything but him. Let's just be honest, right? We throw, we have a massive glory problem. We throw all of our pursuit and joy on things other than him when God is standing in infinite perfection saying, you can have me. And I've made everything not for you, but ultimately for me because he knows you'll be most satisfied because when you do what, how you're made, you're most joyful. And you're most joyful when you live in how you were made. And that's how God has made us, to be worshipers. And we can worship him or we can worship ourselves and commit the fundamental sin of the universe in Genesis 3 and say, I want glory for myself. I don't want to give it to you. And God will say, okay, well, here's how weighty that offense is. Has it escaped you? Because where is the, the grief over your sin? Where's the mourning over the ways that you belittle his name? Do you have any? 
do you have any concern for the ways that you do not chase him and that you chase everything else? How do you feel about that offense? Have you thought about his glory? Have you thought about who this God is? I mean, where is our celebration over God's work in the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ? We will celebrate in the arenas. We'll celebrate at the hockey games. We'll celebrate at the concerts. We'll celebrate everywhere else. But where is the celebration? Where is the love? Where is the pursuit? Where is the glory over throwing ourselves gladly at what Jesus Christ has done for us and rescuing us from this? Where is it? It's on television. It's on our neighbors. It's on people that you envy. It's on your pride. It's on the ways that you're seeking approval. It's on your self-image. It's on your insecurity. It's everywhere but on him. And the beautiful thing is, when you're found in him, he frees you from all of that. So what is God's response? We think that we're not worthy of hell. We don't think we deserve it. I think we need to consider the weight of his glory a little bit more. And thank God that he doesn't just respond with hell, but the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ. That's next week. Let's pray and ask him to help us, though, in this moment. Father, would you bring us to a spot, a place where we can consider the, the reality of life and death, the reality of eternal separation, the reality of um, truths that you give us in your word. Father, we need help in this. Father, there are days that I walk in where my offense escapes me daily. God, forgive me for being a glory thief. Forgive me for robbing you the glory that is due. But God, we thank you, we praise your name that Jesus Christ, your perfect sinless son that is God, came and dwelt among us. We thank you that he drank the cup for us. We thank you that he took hell for us. What massive love and mercy and grace that you put it on yourself for fallen humanity to bring us back to relationship with you where we can live and love you as we were made and designed. Father, I pray that you would bring people to salvation this morning. I pray that people would gladly repent of sin when they see you in your holy nature and in your infinite perfections, that you'd reveal your beauty to them. God, I pray you'd help us even navigate the, the ways that our minds are even trying to grapple with our limited understandings of the immensity of these topics. But Father, we need to know the realities of eternity and of your glory to understand how to truly live now, to understand how to truly cherish the work of your Son. Father, as we observe the Lord's Supper, would we cherish the table this morning? Would we cherish, Lord, the work of Jesus Christ who took on hell itself for us so that we would not only not have to endure it, but receive what we could never earn or pay or buy. 
Father, would you help us this week, Lord, as we strive to live as the people of God? God, help us to grieve rightly and, and examine our hearts rightly. And, but I pray you give us some space right now in the quiet just to sit in this for a moment, to take honest stock of where we're at, to have good, honest conversations in our homes about ways that we can pursue you and enjoy you more and see more of your great gospel work in Christ, understanding these realities. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going we're gonna to take the supper in just a few minutes. We, we love to give, just if you're new or first time, a few minutes just for a confession examination. Uh, Paul's going to say, hey, before we come to the table, just, just um, consider him. Consider Christ. Consider your sin. You know, confess anything you need to confess. This, these tables do not give you righteousness. They do not give you um, merit into the kingdom of God. They do not save you. They do not add to your salvation. Christ alone does that. But we are nourished by remembering the saving benefits of Jesus Christ as broken body and shed blood. So let's richly enjoy what Christ has done for us and the second response of God towards us in our sin. And, and also, if, you, if you're in this room, not a Christian, do not believe in this, have a lot of questions, talk to an elder pastor after. You don't need to come to the table. Table's not something to be ashamed of by not coming to. Uh, it's just for those of us that know Jesus and love him and are one of his own, and you can become one of his own. Uh, you can repent of your sin and turn to Christ and be saved and be reconciled to God and enjoy the God who made you and learn what it means to walk in that way. You can do that this morning as well. And we're gonna pray towards that end and we're gonna sing in a few minutes uh, enjoying the God who did this for us.